In connection with the ascension of Jesus Christ, let's read two separate psalms. First, Psalm 24, and then Psalm 47. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lift up ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Then Psalm 47. Psalm 47, entitled to the chief musician, a psalm for the sons of Korah. O clap your hands, all ye people, shout unto God with the voice of triumph. For the Lord Most High is terrible, he is a great king over all the earth. He shall subdue the people under us and the nations under our feet. He shall choose our inheritance for us, the excellency of Jacob, whom he loved, Selah. God is gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises unto our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth, sing ye praises with understanding. God reigneth over the heathen, God sitteth upon the throne of his holiness. The princes of the people are gathered together, even the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong unto God. He is greatly exalted. Thus far we read God's holy and an errant word. May God add his blessing upon the reading of his holy scriptures. It's on the basis of these passages of Scripture and many others besides that we find the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 18. Lord's Day 18, question 46. How dost thou understand these words, he ascended 
into heaven. That Christ, in sight of his disciples, was taken up from earth into heaven, and that he continues there for our interest until he comes again to judge the quick and the dead. Is not Christ then with us even to the end of the world, as he hath promised? Christ is very man and very God. With respect to his human nature, he is no more on earth. But with respect to his Godhead, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is at no time absent from us. But if his human nature is not present, wherever his Godhead is, are not then these two natures in Christ separated from one another? Not at all. For since the Godhead is illimitable and omnipresent, it must necessarily follow that the same is beyond the limits of the human nature he assumed, and yet is nevertheless in this human nature and remains personally united to it. Of what advantage to us is Christ's ascension into heaven? First, that he is our advocate in the presence of his Father in heaven. Secondly, that we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, as the head, will also take up to himself us, his members. Thirdly, that he sends us his spirit as an earnest, by whose power we seek the things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, and not things on earth. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, what is noteworthy about the psalmist's prophesying of the ascent of Jesus is the joy that is found throughout these psalms. You notice that, did you not, as we were reading through Psalm 24 and then Psalm 47, you can, you can feel the joy and the enthusiasm of the psalmist come through. Psalm 24, verse 7, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Repeated as well in Psalm 47, O clap your hands, all ye people, shout unto God with the voice of triumph. Why? For the Lord Most High is terrible. He is great King. Speaking of the exalted, ascended Jesus Christ, He is great King over all the earth. This is noteworthy because consider for a second the ascension of Jesus Christ from the perspective of of the disciples. Do you think the disciples had hearts that were filled with joy that they wanted to clap their hands when Jesus Christ was taken out of their presence 
into heaven. The psalmists, as led by the Spirit of God, were given the ability to understand some of the significance, the blessing of the ascension of Jesus Christ for God's people. So may God this evening fill our hearts with that same joy as we consider the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven. First, let's consider then our mediator's heavenly ascent. First, we'll consider the place he went. Second, we'll ask the question, why? What was the necessity of his ascent? And then third, looking at question and answer 49 of the catechism, to see what the advantage is to us of Christ's ascension into heaven. Consider with me the historical fact of the ascent of Jesus Christ. Forty days after the resurrection of Christ, in his body, he was taken up into heaven. Resurrection being on Sunday morning, the third day after he was crucified, the women came to the tomb. They found it empty. He is not here, for he is risen. For 40 days then, Jesus Christ remained upon this earth. He revealed himself on many different occasions to his disciples, even to large groups of people. Some of the infallible proofs that Jesus Christ had indeed conquered death and the grave. But then 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he was taken up into heaven. A few things that we can note with regard to his ascent. First of all, his ascent was a bodily ascent. If one was to look in the Middle Eastern nations of the earth where Jesus Christ lived and ministered, if one was to look even in the tombs of the earth, one will not find the remains of the body of Jesus. His body went up into heaven. Second, we note with regard to the ascension of Jesus Christ that it was a visible ascent. Jesus Christ had gathered with him some of his disciples. He went out to Mount Olivet, there, Jesus gave to his disciples some of his final instructions. He taught them, ye are my witnesses. You are to go out throughout Samaria, throughout Judah, even unto the Gentile nations, bringing my word. And then as they stood watching him, he was taken up. A visible ascent. Third, we note with regard to the ascension of Jesus Christ that his ascent into heaven was an immediate ascent. We do not know where heaven is at. God has not revealed that unto us. Heaven is hidden from our view. Could be that heaven is closer than what we realize. 
but God has not given us the eyes to behold that, but we don't know where heaven is at. It doesn't matter whether heaven is relatively close to us or a long ways away from us, but immediately, Jesus Christ was translated into the glories of heaven. Bodily, visible, immediate ascent. But then it raises the question, the practical question, which the catechism addresses. Does this go against then the word of Jesus Christ? Did not Jesus promise that he was going to remain with his disciples even unto the end? And now if Jesus Christ has ascended up into heaven, does this present a contradiction in what Jesus said. Question 48. But if his human nature, I'll go back a question, 47. Is not Christ then with us even to the end of the world as he hath promised? This question and the following question, question 48 were necessitated because of a conflict that the Reformers had. It was a conflict that was had with the Lutherans. The Lutherans taught what is called the ubiquity of the human nature of Jesus Christ. The ubiquity of his human nature is simply this, that Jesus, according to his humanity, his human nature, is everywhere present. So that not just spiritually that Jesus is everywhere, but physically Jesus is everywhere. It's based on the doctrine of the ubiquity of the human nature of Jesus Christ that the Lutherans have their doctrine of the Lord's Supper. That the bread that they eat is Jesus Christ. That's possible because according to their teaching, Jesus Christ physically is everywhere. So in order to safeguard against a misunderstanding about where Jesus Christ is physically at, the Reformers found it necessary to emphasize that there's a distinction between the human nature of Christ and the divine nature of Christ. And the Reformed position understanding is that Jesus, according to his human nature, is up in heaven. He sits in heaven. If we could find heaven, which God has not permitted us to be able to do, we could see Jesus sitting at God's right hand. But then Jesus Christ, according to his divine nature, the Catechism speaks of his Godhead, his majesty, his grace, and his spirit. According to his divine nature, he is at no time absent from his people, but According to that, the, the divine nature of Jesus Christ, he is everywhere at every moment in time. Human nature ascended, divine nature is everywhere. 
But now understanding that according to his human nature, he ascended into heaven. There is this question, who has even the right to enter heaven? Who may go there? This is something that we as Christians consider on a very personal level. Will I go to heaven? Am I confident that I will go to heaven? The scriptures teach us that there are certain rules which guard the entry into heaven. Not just anyone is permitted to cross through the pearly gates and go into heaven. But there are rules that are set by God himself that guard the door. Some are permitted entry into heaven. The door is open, but to others, the door is closed. The psalmist acknowledged this reality that not everyone can ascend into heaven. Psalm 24, verse 3. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in His holy place? We live at a time on this earth where that's a very unpopular truth. To speak of rules that govern the entry into heaven. To maintain that There are certain standards that must be met. And if those standards are not met, then that individual is going to be denied access into heaven. There is not only found throughout the world, but also throughout much of evangelical Christianity, a spirit of tolerance and acceptance. The order of the day is to open the doors up to everyone and receive everyone into the fellowship of the church. We've reached a point where the church is defined by many in the world, not by what separates the church from the world, but the church now is defined by many according to her ability to receive the world into herself. And if the church doesn't do a very good job at lowering the standards and receiving everybody in of the world into herself, then that church is judged as being a hypocritical, pharisaical, legalistic church. Who shall ascend? into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in His holy place? The only one who may enter heaven is the one who is perfectly holy. Psalm 47, verse 8, God reigneth over the heathen, God sitteth upon the throne of His holiness. Psalm 24, answering the questions asked in verse 3, Who shall stand in the holy place? Verse 4, He that hath clean hands 
and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. Four different aspects of the humanity of Christ described in that verse. His hands, his heart, his soul, his mouth. He that hath clean hands is the one who may enter into heaven. Pilate, after he condemned Jesus Christ, said, I wash my hands of this. But it was not possible for Pilate to wash his hands of the blood that stained them. For it is only the one who has perfectly clean hands who can enter heaven. The heart, he that hath clean hands and a pure heart. And who of us has purity in our heart? Parents, we pray that our children would be given pure thoughts. But oftentimes, our hearts are aptly described by Jeremiah the prophet. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The Lord searches the hearts and he knows the heart of man. Jesus had a pure heart. Who ascends? One who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity. The besetting sin against which every one of us must struggle. Pride. An inflated sense of self. Vanity where our thoughts revolve around our own wants and our own needs instead of thinking about and caring for the brethren whom God puts in our lives. The one who ascends into heaven is the one who has not lifted up his soul into vanity. Then the mouth, what do we do with our mouths? Nor sworn deceitfully. The tongue is a little member, and yet it works so great and evil, who can control the tongue? How often do we not blurt things out impulsively, and then later on reflect on what was said and are filled with shame? That some of the darkness of our heart revealed through our tongues. James teaches that we put bridles on horses and we put rudders on ships which turn the ships about. And yet, what man of himself can control his tongue? Jesus exercised that perfect control over his tongue so that he was worthy to enter the holy place and stand before God himself.
that's the place that Jesus went. He deserved it. It was the perfect place for him to go. But why then was it that Jesus Christ must ascend? Noted in the introduction that this would have been a very practical question for the disciples of Jesus to consider. We, looking back on this event, never having spoken with Jesus personally in the flesh on this earth, would not have been impacted by the ascension of Jesus Christ in the same way that the disciples would have been. But if you consider the ascent from their perspective, that their friend, their mentor, the one whom they broke bread with, the one whom they fellowshiped with, the one whom they followed for three years as he taught them how to be fishers of men, that man, Jesus Christ, in his body went up into heaven. It hardly would have been the reaction of the disciples to clap their hands with exuberant rejoicing at the fact that Jesus was taken away from them and went up to heaven. So why? Why must he go? And now as we consider this question of the necessity of the ascent of Jesus Christ, we consider it especially from a Christological point of view. We're going to consider here why Jesus Christ ascended into heaven from the point of view of the doctrine of Jesus Christ. You can also consider it from a salvation point of view. Why is it for your profit, for my profit, that Jesus Christ ascended? And God willing, we'll do that in the third point. But now we're looking, why must Jesus Christ ascend into heaven from the viewpoint of Jesus Christ himself? First of all, it was necessary for Jesus Christ to ascend into heaven in order that he might fulfill the Old Testament Scriptures. The Word of God throughout the Old Testament had prophesied that Jesus Christ, or the Messiah would be the word used, that the Messiah would ascend up into heaven. We read of the ascent of Jesus Christ in the Psalms. Psalm 24 speaks of the ascent as something that will happen. It's a future event. Psalm 24, verse 7. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors. And the King of glory, Jesus, shall come in. Psalm 24 speaks of this as something that will happen. Psalm 47, strikingly, speaks of it as something that already did happen. Psalm 47, verse 5. God is gone up with a shout, the Lord, with the sound of a trumpet. Astounding that this Old Testament writer speaks of a future event as if it had already been done. The the explanation for this, you know, beloved, is that in the counsel of God, in the mind of God, the ascension of Jesus Christ was 
so really existed in God's counsel that even though historically in time it had not yet happened, yet the psalmist knew that in God's mind this was an accomplished fact. And so from the viewpoint of God's counsel, the psalmist was able to say in the fifth verse of Psalm 47, God is gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Now, would you be able to trust the Word of God if Jesus did not go up into heaven? Do you see how the credibility of the Old Testament Scriptures depends on their prophecies being fulfilled? We would not be able to trust the Word of God if it made prophecies that were not fulfilled. That's the first reason why Jesus Christ had to ascend into heaven because the Scriptures prophesied it. Because He did ascend, we can approach the Scriptures with confidence. It's remarkable the accuracy with which the Old Testament psalmists, prophets, anticipated the ascent of Jesus. Second, why must Jesus Christ ascend into heaven? He had to ascend into heaven because He had completed the work that God the Father in heaven had given unto Him to do. This comes out especially in John, John chapter 17, a passage familiar to us, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. John 17, verse 4, Jesus prays to his Father, I have glorified thee on the earth, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Then, if we go down a few verses to verse 11, John 17, verse 11, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. That's why Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, because he had accomplished the work, the mission that His Father had given unto Him to complete upon this earth. And now having finished that work, Jesus testified unto the Father, I come unto Thee. God had given a specific mandate to Jesus as He sent Jesus Christ into this world in an act of love. The mandate that the Father had given unto Jesus was that Jesus was to manifest the name of the Father among men. Jesus was to go with His eyes fixed ahead on Calvary until at last His body would be broken there to redeem God's people from their sins. But Jesus Christ, now having finished that work that the Father had given unto Him to do, it was necessary and appropriate then that Jesus be taken off of this earth and brought up to the glories of of heaven. 
The fact that Jesus Christ was able to ascend into heaven and sit upon the throne of holiness was proof that the Father approved of the work of His Son. And then third, why did Jesus Christ ascend into heaven? Because as the Son of God, He deserved glory. Psalm 24, verse 5. He, speaking prophetically of Christ, He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. You understand that when Jesus entered this earth in lowly birth in Bethlehem, that Jesus Christ hid, as it were, His glory from view. Philippians 2 teaches us about that. He became like unto us. He became a servant. And throughout all of His earthly ministry, Jesus Christ continued faithfully as a servant of God and a servant of of His people on this earth. And yet Jesus Christ was not given on this earth the glory that was due unto His name. And as Jesus Christ remained upon this earth and carried out the work that God gave unto Him to do, it became increasingly evident that Jesus did not fit on this earth. He was too holy for this earth. We noted in the first point, who is it who ascends the holy hill? It's the one that has clean hands and a pure heart. And it's exactly because Jesus had clean hands and a pure heart who never swore deceitfully, whose soul was never lifted up in vanity that the world could not stomach the presence of Jesus on this earth. God removed His Son from off of this earth and brought Him to the place of glory that He deserved in heaven. Psalm 47 Verses 7 and 8. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing ye praises with understanding. God reigneth over the heathen. God sitteth upon the throne of His holiness. That's why He ascended. But what then is the blessing for you? And for me, that Jesus has gone up. The Catechism speaks of three of them. First, that He is our advocate in the presence of His Father in heaven. Second, we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that He will take us up to Himself. And then thirdly, and this we focus on this evening, thirdly, He, Jesus, sends us His Spirit as an earnest, an earnest 
The word earnest simply means a down payment. A person borrows money from the bank to purchase property. The bank requires of him that he give an earnest, he give a down payment. A down payment is a seal, it's a promise that I will pay back the money that I am borrowing from the banker. What's remarkable in this situation is it's not we who are indebted unto God. It's not we who are, as it were, making a down payment to God, promising that more will come. Here, God, here are some good works, but I promise I'll be more faithful in the future and I will give greater, holier works to thee. No, it's not we who make this down payment, this earnest to God but it's God Himself through Jesus Christ who gives us the earnest, the down payment. God, as it were, becomes indebted to us. God says, here is the Holy Spirit. I give unto you the Holy Spirit as an earnest. It's a promise that more is coming Later, just as the individual who borrows money from the bank gives a down payment with the assurance that, yes, I will pay off the rest of the loan to the bank, so God unto us gives us the Spirit of Jesus Christ. By the Spirit of Jesus Christ, we are given to taste of God's goodness unto us. By the earnest of the Spirit, we taste and see that God is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in Him. By the operation of the Holy Spirit within our hearts, He causes us to behold God's goodness. The Spirit always performs the work of drawing us unto God. The Spirit of Jesus Christ is breathed forth from the Father and from the Son. And the Spirit always unites us back unto the Father and unto the Son. We're given the earnest of the Holy Spirit at the moment of our regeneration. For many of us born into covenant homes and covenant families, we probably cannot even point to a specific moment in our lives when we did not have the Spirit of Jesus Christ within us. But for as long as we've had life on this earth and we can remember our life and existence on this earth, the Spirit has been at work in us. The Spirit draws us unto God by convicting us of our sins. It's the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ given to us. And the Spirit reveals unto us where we have not had clean hands, a pure heart. The Spirit convicts us when we've lifted up our souls in vanity. When we've used our tongues 
to swear deceitfully. It's a necessary part of the Spirit drawing us nigh unto God. For without holiness, no man shall see God. And then the Spirit draws us unto God by applying unto us the saving benefits of Jesus Christ. The Spirit gives unto us to know our justification, forgiveness of our sins. The Spirit gives unto us to know that we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. The Spirit does so by teaching us. He leads the church into the truth. And on the basis of truth, we know that we are one with God. The Spirit is with us wherever we are at. The earnest of the Spirit. We spoke earlier about Jesus Christ's bodily ascent into heaven. Physically, He is no longer with us. But spiritually, He is with us. And how amazing is the truth that the Holy Spirit does not have the spatial limitations that the human nature of Jesus Christ has. Jesus, in his human nature, is limited to being in one spot at one moment in time. The Spirit does not have those limitations. But the Spirit is everywhere present. In our going out, and in our coming in, from this day forth and even forevermore, the confidence we have is that the Spirit of Jesus Christ goes with us. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God in heaven, we thank Thee for the earnest of Thy Son, Jesus Christ. We thank Thee that Thou hast not left us in our sinful state, but Thou hast redeemed us. And Thou dost draw us even at this present moment unto Thee. Go with us in the week ahead. Comfort us, uphold us, sustain us, deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.